Support for WERU health-related programming comes from Inner Tapestry, Maine's holistic journal, featuring alternative health and natural living articles, calendar listings, and a directory of resources. Available at health food stores and alternative health centers, 799-7995 or innertapestry.org. In addition, support for health-related programming on WERU comes from the nonprofit Whole Health Center on MDI, since 1981 providing counseling and holistic health care and now taking registrations for their China Qigong Tour, May 2007. Brochures of the China Tour are available at 288-4128 or thewholehealthcenter.com. It's almost 10.02, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor, and streaming online at weru.org. Healthy Options with Rhonda Feynman is up next. Hello and uh, welcome. You are listening to Healthy Options on WERU. I'm Rhonda Feynman. And today uh, we'll have a number of guests, uh, but we'll start with uh, Dr. Gerald Hambright, who is a, uh, a psychologist and counselor at Togus Veterans Administration Medical Center here in Maine, in Augusta, Maine. He works with the uh, post-traumatic stress disorder uh, program that they do have there, and we'll be dis- discussing uh, PTSD with uh, Dr. Hambright, and also a little bit later in the program, Lisa Kushner, who was a practitioner, a practitioner of uh, EMDR, which is uh, eye movement desensitization and uh, reprocessing, um, another treatment strategy for P- uh, PTSD. She'll be with us a, a little bit later. But right now, uh, Dr. Hambright, um, I want to welcome you to the show. Thank you, Rhonda. I'm glad to be here. Great. Um, so um, I, let's start really right at the basics. Um, people have heard the term PTSD, but maybe you could help define a little bit about what, what in fact, that is. Okay. Uh, post-traumatic stress disorder uh, is an anxiety disorder uh, that can occur uh, uh, following an exposure to a uh, traumatic event. Uh, the best way I like to define a traumatic event is uh, basically any uh, type of event that is uh, life-threatening. Uh, some examples, some general examples of traumatic events are things such as physical and sexual assault, uh, people who are exposed to combat, terrorism, natural disasters, things of that nature. Uh, and what uh, typically happens is after uh, the exposure uh, the individual will develop what we call a cluster of symptoms. And there are three uh, cluster types of symptoms that are related to PTSD. The first cluster of symptoms are known as what we call the re-experiencing symptoms. That is, the uh, traumatic experience will come back to the person in some form or fashion. The typical ways in which it comes back is either through uh, nightmares, that is, bad dreams, are through what we call flashbacks, where the person uh, actually has the sense that they are uh, reliving the uh, experience. Uh, the second cluster of symptoms are known as what we call the avoidance and numbing symptoms. Since the first cluster of symptoms are so distressing, the individual uh, then tries to do things to cope uh, with the distress by either avoiding things that are associated uh, with the memory uh, of the trauma. Uh, and it also leads to uh, what we call a numbing of response, a sense of 
uh, not being able to experience emotions uh, as they did uh, prior to the traumatic experience. And the final cluster of symptoms are what we call the symptoms of increased arousal, which are symptoms that are usually associated uh, uh, with uh, exaggerated stall responses, uh, hypervigilance, uh, things of that, uh, that nature. So um, what, what you've described is really post-traumatic stress disorder is something that could be fairly common in our, in our society. You don't have to necessarily have, have been in a war or necessarily have been attacked. You could, it, it, it could be something that uh, a, a, a traumatic experience for one person may not feel like a traumatic experience to another. Is exactly. That- uh, you know, like uh, everyday uh, motor vehicle accidents, severe motor vehicle accidents, something of that nature could uh, lead to post-traumatic stress disorder. Why would you think, um, if if you have a group of people who are exposed to a similar situation, is there any way to predict or to know why one group would actually have come have some of these reoccurring um, uh, problems and, and another group wouldn't? Which, what's the individual uh, factor? There, there, there are there are kind of correlates that we we've discovered, uh, meaning that. Uh, Folks who are exposed to traumas for long durations of time, their incidence of PTSD uh, will increase. Uh, People who are exposed to uh, more kind of severe uh, injuries and death and witnessing that uh, uh, tend to uh, have more uh, uh, incidences of of post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, people who uh, have um, probably prior mental health issues, hmm. uh, the incidence of, of, of PTSD is greater. So there, there are a number of, of, of correlates, but there's no kind of absolute one thing. So are people aware? I mean, obviously, if you're having a recurrence of a particular situation, you might say, wow, there's something wrong or there's something re-stimulating. Um, you, me, um, but are, are, aren't there a, a series of factors where someone might have chronic pain, for instance, or um, find that they're abusing substances, drug, alcohol, or something like that, where they're not even aware that that is related to a trauma that might have happened in the past? How, how do we deal with that? Well, uh, oftentimes people, uh, and, and you're, you're talking about part of kind of the avoidant symptoms, right. o- oftentimes people will use uh, medications, drugs, and alcohol uh, as a way of uh, alleviating the uh, distress. Um, usually older people are aware uh, because of the re-experiencing, uh, particularly the re-experiencing symptoms, uh, they are aware of the uh, uh, of the experience that is coming back, so they would actually uh, be aware. Uh, children who uh, probably were uh, traumatized bef- before language, verbal language, where they could, uh, you know, kind of label an experience as an experience, uh, w- would oftentimes find it difficult to kind of understand why these symptoms are 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 happening. Or if the experience is uh, to such uh, uh, severe 
uh, degree uh, a person may have what we call um, kind of a restricted range of not being able to remember certain parts of the trauma, but usually people uh, are aware of the the actual experience because of its intense nature. So would you find that... uh so they're they're aware of it, but is is there? What you mentioned right now that there is a a, a mem- part of the memory. I'm really interested in how memory gets uh, gets placed in our in our consciousness. Um, you said that there is some active memory. There's some idea that we're oh this happened to me. I'm exactly. aware of that. Exactly. What about? Aren't there aspects of of the memories that are not so conscious, and that could be causing uh, different kind of difficulties that are not so obviously from from the trauma. Would would you say that that's a possibility? Well, you, usually what 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 I what I uh, express to people is oftentimes uh, people are are usually aware of some portions of uh, the trauma, the actual experience, but as a result of that uh, second cluster of symptoms, the avoidance and numbing, right. they're working really hard to try to distance themselves from, from the memory because usually what happens when the memory comes back, the associated uh, distress and physiological uh, symptoms will come back as well. So the person is working really hard uh, to uh, avoid having those uh, experiences. And in, 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 in many instances, uh, we'll be. I'm assuming we'll be talking about treatment a little bit later. Very shortly, yeah. Uh, but uh, one of the keys to treatment is to to, uh, to to focus on the 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 avoidance and the numbing s- symptoms. That in fact, many people think that the re-experiencing symptoms m- may be a way in which the the person is trying to put the experience uh, into perspective. And that may be, in, in fact, the healing process that is going on, the natural recovery process. So let's let's talk about treatment a, a little bit, and especially um, you, this is something you do every day. This yes. is <laughs> so you have a lot of experience, and I think you've been with Togus what since nineteen eighty eight, eighty nine. That's correct. So you've really been watching um, uh, a, a lot of of traumatic uh, people from the past and the present coming through coming through your offices. Let me ask you this, and, and I just because we do have listeners and we are online, um, I, would somebody get reactivated just by hearing our conversation? Uh, they could. Uh, it, even going over the, uh, in, in terms of describing the uh, criteria, oftentimes can, can bring back uh, these memories and associated uh, symptoms. So uh, any advice as we continue along here for someone who's listening who might be vulnerable so we can really feel some safety as uh, we proceed? A, a, exactly. The, the, the key thing that I would uh, say to folks, if, if the symptoms are, are too intense, and, and, and this is just kind of a general uh, standard of treatment. If the symptoms are uh, intense to the degree that the person is either thinking about harming themselves or harming someone else, the first thing to do is seek immediate treatment. Uh, call 911, go to the emergency room. Uh, we're talking about safety uh, mm-hmm. is the, the, the first line of defense if the, the, the symptoms are, are getting uh, uh, are, are that uh, severe where the person 
is thinking about either harming themselves or harming someone else. Uh, for uh, other people, uh, what I would uh, recommend, uh, it depends. It depends on how recent the, 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 the trauma uh, was. In the immediate aftermath of any traumatic experience, uh, just about everyone is going to have some kind of post-traumatic uh, stress kind of reaction, meaning they may continue to think about the experience, they may have uh, difficulty sleeping, uh, they have, may have uh, in, uh, a number of those increased arousal symptoms that I, I spoke about. So uh, generally, uh, immediately after the trauma, many of these symptoms are just kind of the, the normal reactions that a person has who have been exposed to a traumatic event. What, what you look for is over time, we, we would hope that these uh, symptoms will diminish on their own. And for many people, let me just say this to your audience, for many people, these symptoms do diminish on their own over time without any intervention from a person like me. Uh, what we're talking about is those people who either the symptoms persist or they get worse over time, and particularly if they start to interfere uh, with your social and occupational functioning. Those are the people who, who need to come in and to be seen and evaluated by a mental health provider. Okay, very good. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, let's talk a little bit about treatment. Um, how how would you deal with uh, someone coming into your office now? In terms of the Veterans Administration, are people volunteering to come in, or are they being sent to you? How does that work in uh, your program? People are referred, and it's it's always a volunteer. Treatment is always uh, a volunteer effort where people uh, volunteer to come in for their treatment. The, the, the first thing with any kind of good intervention is to begin with a good, thorough assessment, uh, because when we talk about PTSD, we're not only talking about um, PTSD, but there are oftentimes other co-occurring conditions that can uh, go along with post-traumatic stress disorder, such as uh, some people may be uh, suffering a co-occurring depression uh, if they've been using uh, alcohol or other substances to cope with their symptoms. If they've been using that for a long period of time, they may have a co-occurring uh, substance abuse or alcohol uh, conditions. There may be other anxiety-related uh, kinds of conditions. So uh, the uh, first uh, thing is to get a, a thorough assessment done by a, a licensed mental health practitioner, a psychiatrist, social worker, uh, licensed clinical social worker, psychologist to, 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 mm -hmm. to see what is going on. Uh, once it's established that the condition is post-traumatic stress disorder, and that's, that's the, the primary complaint, uh, there are a number of effective uh, treatments. Uh, the treatments uh, usually uh, are of two types. They are pharmacological treatments, which are medications, and I won't talk uh, much about those because uh, that could be a whole nother show, yes, you know, okay. psychiatrists who would come in and talk about medications and stuff. But then the other groups of treatments are what we call the psychotherapies or talk therapies. Uh, and there has been a, a group of therapies 
known as cognitive behavioral therapies that have uh, been demonstrated to be effective with post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapies actually are, 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 are a collection of diverse kinds of treatments that includes things such as uh, stress management, where you're, you're, you're training the person in what we call coping skills to manage their symptoms associated with PTSD. Uh, another form of, of cognitive behavioral therapy is called exposure therapy, mm. where you are uh, helping the person through a retelling of the experience uh, to uh, decrease the uh, the affect and the, uh, the 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 associated symptoms that are related uh, to the memory and exposing people to what we call non-threatening cues. For instance, hmm. if a person uh, was traumatized in a crowd, one of the uh, things that they may find difficult to do is like going to the uh, local supermarket. So one of the treatments would be to actually have the person go to uh, the local s- supermarket, uh, of course, in a safe environment, and to stay uh, so that they can begin to realize that uh, by going into the supermarket that they're not going to be uh, re-traumatized. So exposure mm-hmm. therapy is a very effective treatment. Uh, there are what we call cognitive therapies uh, where uh, folks are starting to look at the memories and the cognitions associated with the memories of the trauma uh, and uh, challenging some of those uh, cognitions that are keeping the person uh, stuck, so to speak. And more uh, recently, and one of the things that we're using in our program is uh, some of the newer forms of what they call cognitive behavioral therapies or what what are known as the third-generation cognitive behavioral therapies. Uh, And uh, we're using uh, one of those approaches uh, in our program, it's called Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, better known as, as ACT, which is a combination of uh, the traditional behavioral change processes and uh, some of the more mindfulness strategies, mindfulness acceptance-based strategies to help people uh, uh, recover from their uh, trauma. So is that uh, have to do with breathing techniques or understanding how trauma lives in the body, perhaps, or and and what what but happens when something gets triggered? One of the one of the difference between many many of the uh, cognitive behavioral uh, strategies are all based on what we call uh, change based approaches, which essentially means we're either teaching people strategies to uh, lure distress and the memories associated with the distress are either correcting the memories or restructuring. Another term we oftentimes use is restructuring the memories, Uh, whereas uh, uh, the more mindfulness or the newer forms of of CBT, uh, it it takes a look at helping the person kind of to realize that this is basically only a memory, that a memory is a memory. It happened in the past. It's not happening Mm -hmm. in the present moment. So um, we talked about the 
interesting aspects of re-stimulation that can happen. How long are these sessions? I mean, if someone is reliving a, 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 a distressing, distressing situation, do you keep someone there for a while, or how how do we? How would you keep someone from being overstimulated by by this? How, what's the, what is the gradual process that would happen? Uh, you know, there are different, you know, different methods of treatment. You can do uh, individual treatment. Some of the individual protocols, cognitive behavioral protocols, are anywhere from uh, 9 to 12 sessions, uh, individual sessions. Uh, our program is uh, a more intensive uh, program, so we're keeping... Folks, folks come into our program. Uh, it's a four-week intensive uh, day treatment um, program, uh, and so it's it's of a, a much a longer duration. It 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 just depends in terms of uh, where the person is, uh, how much trauma exposure the person has been exposed to, for what duration, how long have they had the symptoms, what avoidance strategies have they developed. Over many many years, uh, all of those things need to be taken into account when you're doing treatment. When you're, um, are, are you working with groups and individuals, or, or have you found one better than the other? Or is it just on an individual basis that? Let me let me let me talk about our program. Our yes. program there actually uh, the PTSD services here at Togus. There are two components to it. Uh, there is uh, a specialized outpatient component uh, where, uh, in, in that they're doing a, a lot of primarily individuals. There's some group work there. There's some educational uh, classes. Our intensive day treatment program uh, is primarily a, a group treatment process uh, with some uh, individual work uh, 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 thrown in, so it just it it really de- depends on uh, the assessment and where the person is. Is there a in, it, since you are at, at the VA and and this is a, a, an important service that you're providing? Is there an openness to this now? Do you find that there's a res- or a resistance to having people come into the program? Is there or, or how are you creating that so that that there is that it's okay? It's okay to realize that this has happened to you or that you're having a, a, an issue. I think shows like this is one way we can right. uh, get the word out. And, uh, uh, of course, uh, uh, the more we can get the word out to people, because oftentimes people are leery about uh, coming in for uh, mental health treatment. Uh, there, you know, over the years there's been kind of a stigma attached to that. But once people uh, actually get into treatment and, and, and realize that it's, it, it's really a collaborative effort between them and their uh, therapist, uh, and the goal is uh, to help them get back into life uh, uh, and get back into uh, functioning. And the more people who, who, who realize that, I think it makes it easier for people to, to kind of uh, come in, and also the support, I think the support of the family uh, is a thing that, that gets people uh, in uh, to treatment. Uh, we, we, we know uh, 
that uh, half the battle of, of treatment is, is just having uh, a good support system, not only professional support system, but a, a, a good support system uh, at home. So are you um, in conjunction with the very specific cognitive behavioral therapies that you're doing? Is there also a, a branch that would deal with someone's other coping skills, the, the substance abuse issues, um, any kind of, you know, that, that aspect? Yeah. Uh, some, some programs, depending on the, the, the nature uh, of the program, some programs prefer that people uh, get uh, alcohol treatment kind of uh, concurrently. That's, that's the new thing, concurrently with their treatment of, of, of uh, PTSD. Uh, depending on, for our program, depending on the severity of the alcohol use, uh, we uh, primarily conceptualize if the, if the alcohol is primarily used as a way of coping with the distressing uh, memories, uh, and it's not uh, to the point where it's so severe that, of course, the person needs de- detox yes. and a more longer-term treatment, uh, we will bring um, people in and, 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 and work with them. But that's part of the assessment to kind of figure that out we need to do. Is there outreach happening? I mean, I know uh, I know we're doing a show now, and I think it's really important, and I do want you to give the phone number. So if there are vets out there who uh, have been, you know, on the fence or wondering if they should be coming in for treatment where they can call perhaps and speak with you. Um, but I know that there are a number of uh, vets all over the country who are, you know, really have removed themselves from society due to some of the stress, you know, really. And, and is there a way to reach that kind of population? Or? Yes, I, I, I should mention, let me just uh, say that here at Togus, we have uh, really expanded our mental health services. And not only do we have uh, the specialized PTSD treatment program here with the two components that I, I, I spoke about. We have mental health services. We've got community-based uh, outpatient clinics in uh, Portland and, and Bangor. Uh, we also are uh, connected with the Veterans Center program. It's a part of the Department of Veterans Affairs Readjustment Counseling Services. Uh, they have uh, clinics in Lewiston, Bangor, Portland, Sanford, and Caribou. So there is a wide variety uh, of uh, services for uh, uh, veterans here in the state uh, of Maine. Can you give us a phone number? Oh, I, I, I should just say first, that for people who have just tuned in, that uh, you're listening to Healthy Options on WERU. And we are speaking with Dr. Gerald Hambright, who is uh, one of the... Uh, the people running and, and working with the post-traumatic stress disorder um, program at Togus Veterans Administration Medical Center in Augusta. So Dr. Hambright's about to give us a phone number if you need some further information where you can reach him or other programs. Let me uh, give you the, the name of our team leader for PTSD services. Her name is Dr. Suntal Mim, M-I-H-M. And our phone number where we could be uh, reached, of course, uh, is, uh, you know, the area code is 207 and 623 
and the extension is uh, 5405. Um, that, that, that's great. Let's just do that number again. 207-623-8411. Extension 5405. And you would speak with, is this Dr. Dr. Suntal Mim. Suntal Mim. That's great. Let me ask you uh, just a few more questions about what the actual process is of, of the treatment. When you're working with uh, this month-long intensive, there are how many, how many psychologists are there? How many practitioners are, are... Uh, associated with the intensive day uh, treatment program there? Uh, currently right now there's two psychologists, um, myself uh, and Dr. Uh, Kevin Polk. Uh, we also have uh, postdoctoral uh, residents, psychology residents. From time to time, we have uh, uh, interns, uh, and the uh, program is, it, like I said, it's an intensive uh, four-week program. Uh, the month before, uh, folks uh, get into the service. They come in. We do a screening. We do a comprehensive evaluation. Uh, and then we take them through uh, the four-week process. So it would be something, I would imagine, working with the group, everybody's in a different place, as it were, <laughs> you know, in their recovery or in, in, what, in their acute trauma or, or chronic trauma. Um, are you starting with some of the relaxation, some of the breathing techniques to really have, get people ready to deal with the, the heavy stuff or... With the acceptance and uh, commitment therapy, the kind of the approach that we uh, are using right here, uh, it's actually it's an, uh, an interesting approach in the fact that we uh, start off uh, by exploring with people uh, the struggles that they have. So uh, each person can, you know, definitely get involved in the process and telling us about the, the struggles. We, we also start to talk about uh, the strategies that they've used to try to cope with those uh, struggles. And, 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 of course, when we start to talk about the strategies that they use to uh, cope with the struggles, what you're going to get is a lot of the avoidance kind of, you know, the behaviors. I, you know, I, in the past, I've drank. I've tried to push thoughts out of my head. I try to get busy. Uh, and then we, we try to explain impress upon people that using those strategies, those coping strategies, uh, may be indeed the thing that uh, is, is keeping uh, the person kind of stuck, so to speak. That one of the theories behind PTSD, that is people are trying to work so hard to, to get rid of these memories and these uh, internal painful experiences, that that the process of trying to eliminate those things is the thing that, that uh, holds the condition in place. And if they can uh, realize how to kind of let go of some of those uh, attempts at controlling these internal uh, symptoms, that the, the natural recovery process uh, takes place. So you're, you're seeing results. Uh, very, very effective re- results, and particularly the other component of, of, of the acceptance and commitment therapies, which is a big part of it, is getting people back into life, getting them back connected to their social support systems, uh, getting them back into thinking about things such as work and 
school and education uh, and all of those uh, avenues that uh, helps humans to live a more <laughs> fully functioning life. Well, the program sounds really interesting, and I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us and explaining uh, a lot of, uh, of these issues. And, you know, there's so much more to talk about, and I wanted to um, once again give the phone number over at TOGIS. It's, uh, uh, it's 207-623-8411, extension 5405 for veterans. Um, do you do this for families as well, or is this mostly for the we, veterans? We have a part of, the, part of our program. We have a family uh, education group as part of the intensive program, part of uh, the PCT. They have couples therapies. They've got uh, educational uh, uh, classes. They've got partners, educational classes. Those services are provided as well. Is this happening nationwide, or, is, or are we just on the cutting edge and happy there, to have there, you here th- in Maine? Throughout the, yeah, throughout the VA system, there are a number of specialized uh, uh, programs for PTSD through, actually throughout the, uh, throughout the country. Okay, great. Well, there's so much more to talk about, and we and, and Lisa's here uh, to discuss uh, EMDR. Is that something that you're doing too? Some of the ice. Oh, we've been. Uh, I've been trained in it with Dr. Shapiro. I think is uh, the, the developer yes. of e, uh, EMDR. We haven't been using it in our pro- program, but that is one of the effective treatments for PTSD. I'm really seeing here that uh, that this is really going to be a, a larger series. I think because I'm I, I, I'm an acupuncturist, and I can already see a lot of ways to relax the nervous system that we could be getting into. That where all of these therapies could be working. Together, and I know that there's a lot of other body-centered therapies that we could be talking about, and probably will in future shows. So, All right. thank you for uh, joining us. We've been speaking with. Uh, thank Dr. you so much. Yes, Dr. Gerald uh, Hambright. He is one of the uh, counselors and psychologists. Uh, are you the director of the program, uh, Dr. Hambright? No, I'm one of the staff psychologists. Okay, well, um, over at the Togus Veterans Administration Medical Center in Augusta, Maine. And uh, he is working with the PTSD program there, and uh, he has been there since 1989. And I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. We'll take a minute while Rhonda uh, transitions to her next guest to thank some people who called in and made a pledge at the end of the Barefoot Blues Hour, who the Barefoot Blues guy didn't, and his co-host didn't get to thank. We have Belfast Bicycles. Michael McDonald called with a uh, renewal of a business membership. Thank you. Bill and Karen Torrey of Cherryfield are new members, and they say that Mike owes them a wasteland of the free, which has been duly noted. Ed Libby of Yarmouth is a new member, says doing a great job, and Alejandro got him on the phone. And Patricia McLean of Camden, an additional gift. She loves Mike's show. So thank you to all of those folks who called in and pledged, and you can still do so at 1-800-643-6273. Now back to Healthy Options with Rhonda Feynman. <laughs> Thanks for doing that, Amy. I was I was just about to do my pledge rap, you know. Okay, all right. We don't have to do that now. 
no one has to go into post-traumatic stress about pledge wrapping here. Okay. What um, I do want to do, however, is introduce Lisa Kushner, who is a clinical uh, social worker and uh, working in private practice in Belfast, Maine. Her training includes EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization, uh, desensitization and reprocessing. Yes, is that? Yes. yes. And um, what we're talking about today is post-traumatic stress disorder and different methods to um, actually deal with trauma and any kind of chronic um, effects from uh, that you might be experiencing or one might be experiencing from having experienced all sorts of trauma. This, we were just talking to someone from the Veterans Administration from Togus, but we're not, as we were saying earlier, this doesn't have to be a huge trauma, the big trauma of a war or a, na- a Katrina, a national nat- natural disaster or something like that, or, uh, you know, experiencing a physical abuse or that kind of thing. It could be something less less um, in the news, you know, what an everyday kind of thing, or what, Lisa, what's your thought on that? Well, I, I just, um, I want to say hi to WERU community. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> and I appreciated uh, Dr. Hambright. I thought he was really articulate. And in terms of um, how people perceive trauma, it can be something as simple as a parent pushing the other parent and the child observing that. Uh, so domestic violence, uh, being told off uh, in front of a classroom when you're a kid. I mean, it depends on the individual And as he explained, some of the co-occurring or other factors that influence a child or an adult, an adult's capacity to manage uh, upsetting events. So sometimes temperament, um, biology. Biology as in more sensitive to some, to loud noises even. I I could think of ideas if, if someone hears people speaking loudly. Well, some people have processing disorders and disabilities that affect their ability to manage input, so they are more vulnerable. So we're talking a little bit about brain science here as as well. Um, how our brains work would possibly affect how we experience the world and whether... Mm-hmm. Whether it becomes a, a, a chronic situation or, or something that we can, you know, just let the water fall off our backs. It's not a big deal. I think um, what's also being discovered is that um, your primary attachments, the original relationships that you had with um, your caregivers as, you know, zero to five or um, in early life can influence your capacity to manage trauma. What does that mean? Well, if a person has a uh, secure attachment to a parent or a caregiver as an infant, that those um, experiences and the development that happens in the body and the brain can um, make someone more resourceful than someone who had an inconsistent caregiver or a violent caregiver or, you know, who experienced an attachment that was insecure or confused. You know, I realized as, as I'm listening to you talk that I was talking about large trauma like a combat situation or something like that, and, and, and I'm realizing that what you're describing are large traumas, even though they're little. So I have to 
kind of reassess how we look at, at what trauma is. And, and obviously domestic violence is, is a huge trauma, you know, or even observing yeah, something is a huge trauma. So there's really no the, – the response in the body may not differentiate any of that, and that all of this is valid and, and important to look at. Yeah, and especially for children um, who are dependent on their caregivers, when they witness domestic violence, they know that their own safety uh, is threatened. I mean, it's not cognitive. It's uh, some kind of intuitive thing. So. so so who comes to you? I know you work with adults and children and also uh, adolescents. Um, so maybe you could describe your practice a little bit, and then we could go into more specifics of, of what EMDR is. And. Well, I, um, I see mostly adults. I see a few families with children. Uh, I have some training uh, with children. I worked seven years with foster and adoptive families. And um, my primary interest is adults, though, and people uh, struggling with behaviors or feelings that they want to change. That's who comes. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's great. Let's talk a little bit about what, uh, about po- about, um, what uh, the eye movement desensitization reprocessing is and how that could be an effective tool for treating um, some of the things we've learned about today. Well, this is a type of therapy that was developed by Dr. Francine Shapiro in 1987, I guess, and um, it involves uh, a protocol of treatment that can help people lose the intense physiological and emotional response to traumatic memories. So that if you have a memory of uh, witnessing a car accident or being in a car accident, being physically or sexually abused, and when you are triggered or you get um, uh, cues that cause that memory to resurface, you also get the physiological, you, you can get the physiological responses that happened at the time, which is very distressing to people. And so this treatment can sometimes help people release some of that physiological response and the emotional intensity that goes with it. And, and how, do, do we have an idea how that works? What, what, and, and maybe you could describe what it is first. And, and if someone came in and said, well, perhaps describe the situation you're talking about, what, how, would you, how would you approach that? What would you do in your... Well, um, as Dr. Hambright said, the first thing you've got to do is assess the situation and the individual to see if they can manage this type of treatment. It's very intense, and they have to be able to contain the reactions that they get from it. So you need to do an assessment, you need to do a treatment plan, you need to be sure that they have appropriate social and community supports. And if the person is a good candidate... um, What happens is in the course of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or um, addressing the situation either through a narrative or um, just through talking and description, uh, people come up with uh, negative beliefs about themselves that this trauma created. And um, it usually has to do with responsibility, 
there are three things that are slipping my mind. Mm-hmm. But um, using that negative self-belief and getting in touch with the feelings in the body when they think about a negative image related to the trauma, you the therapist um, does a distraction technique, which is called bilateral stimulation. And it either involves eye movements where you follow a light board or the therapist's hands to make your eyes move across the midline or um, pressure on one side of the hands or the other or holding on to buzzers. So it's a distraction technique that makes the brain move left to right and somehow loosens the associations associated with the memory. And um, no one's exactly sure how that works, but I have seen it to be very effective for some people. So, um, well, I think in certain certain anatomy and brain science, there's some idea that the eyes affect the different parts of the nervous system uh, and and even gets into the limbic system where um, memories are stored that's our kind of a primitive mind, and it, it actually can alter a memory. And what, what we were discussing earlier is that we have some memories that are, we're very aware of and then some that are not. And by doing this, I, isn't, I think that's one theory, that there would be a, um, there would be a, um, a breaking of, of the memory pattern or an opening to create some other, some other uh, thoughts. Were some of those negative thought patterns feeling like helpless Helplessness. Well, they they have more to do with, um, yeah, I am helpless. I have no control. I, I couldn't save someone, I couldn't, so I couldn't save myself. Uh, there's something wrong with me. I'm defective. Uh, you know, uh, it's my fault, and I'm not good enough. the The wonderful thing about um, so this treatment is that, and Dr. Hambright mentioned this in terms of the act modality, is that the um, individual also accesses their uh, body's capacity to heal in a natural way so that the opposite occurs, the positive cognition occurs. Um, I was only a kid. I did my best. Um, you know, it, it wasn't my fault, things like that. So that you you pair the negative cognition with a positive cognition and um, very often the brain will go there. And by reprocessing the physiological effects, it lowers the uh, distress quite a bit. And so you've seen results? You've seen this yeah, change spe- people's ideas? Especially for people with um, uh, more simple com- than complex PTSD. You know, what, what does that mean? Well, for people who have had uh, a single incident trauma... Uh-huh. It's a little easier to address. But for people who have had chronic, years-long exposure to overwhelming events like abuse, interfamilial dysfunction, it's um, more challenging because they've had to make many more adaptations to function. So um, it can take a long time for for people with complex symptoms. So someone comes in, let's say uh, somebody had uh, a car accident you mentioned, or what if, you know, someone who has lived through something like Katrina or, you know, the, the, in, uh, a hurricane, an earthquake, uh, a natural disaster. Um, what, how would you work with someone like that? Would, you, would they be reliving that trauma, then the water came, then 
happen, then how do- It really depends on the individual. I guess about a fourth of people who are exposed to traumatic experience will develop PTSD, but three-fourths won't. And so um, if enough time goes by and the person's natural uh, resources can help them make meaning out of the experience, uh, why they survived, why other people didn't, whatever they need to do to make sense of it, you, they may not need treatment. They may need to. They may not need specific treatment. They may just need to to talk about it. They may not need to talk about it. It really depends. Mm-hmm. But if someone is having the PTSD symptoms of uh, reliving, avoidance, numbing, and um, uh, whatever, increased arousal, increased arousal, and there are other alterations that happen, like a person being unable to concentrate or um, alterations in their ability to trust or um, and then physiological symptoms, chronic pain, uh, as you talked about. They may, they may want some specific treatment. And um, the sessions sometimes take an hour and a half. Sometimes they need more than one, maybe up to 10 or 12. But um, I have seen resolution where a person who at first could hardly talk about the event without quavering voice, intense sweating, you know, terribly distressed, was able to talk about it afterwards as if it were another part of their life story. So you can lose some of the power that the trauma has over you. And it's, um, it's challenging to participate in because I think people are afraid that the affect will actually kill them. You know, it's, it's that desperate a sensation for people. So you need to go slow. You need to be sure they can contain it and also provide appropriate support and um, be sure that they have, you know, enough resources to manage. Meaning? Emotional resources. Okay. Yeah. And that would be part of your initial evaluation. Yeah. To, to see, and I imagine, we, it, and you would adapt, it can, is this something that you can see, well, we're getting to a very sticky place, do we back off here, do we push, is that, that clinical experience, or is, you know, you to have determine? To, you really have to be attuned to the individual and, and what they're experiencing, and um, let them run, it's their, it's their treatment, so they need to be in control of it, and yet, if they won't stop, you need to suggest that maybe it's time to stop now if, and be sure that they can um, get back to a safe place and a sensation of security. So that's the challenge is to um, gauge the uh, person's ability to um, contain and then re-experience. So um, in the throes, in the, in the midst of this, now I know uh, that there are different ways of doing the cognitive behavioral therapy and there are different ways of, of then adding the EMDR um, on, uh, to it or instead of or, you know, conjunction. Um, one, I think, theory was that you really do have someone relive the experience for 45 minutes, you know, really go into it in a, in a, a, a strong way with the idea and then bring them down with the idea that, um, you know, the more that that would help desensitize or, or release some of that uh, chronic uh, habitual memory associations. And I'm, if I'm wrong, I'm, from my reading of EMDR, it seems like you're doing shorter, shorter well, the- bursts of this kind of thing. And so it's not the 45 minutes 
you know, and then you're having actually the person discuss what they're feeling at the time. Isn't that, that's a little bit different. It makes it different from some of the other, uh, the other Well, what's really interesting in, with EMDR is that there's not a lot of talking. Uh-huh. Uh, the person does the processing internally, and um, they have to hold the memory, the negative statement or the positive statement, and the physical sensation while they're using the bilateral stimulation the um, buzzers or the music or whatever. Or the or eye, the eye movement. movements. And um, you're checking in with them to see where they're at, but you don't need to hear the whole story. So that's helpful for folks because it can be like being on a train where you're you know, your mind is picking up the images and the pictures. Your body might be reliving some of the sensations, but you don't have to be talking about all of the details. So the details are your own. And what the clinician wants to know is when you stop where you're at what you're what level of distress you're experiencing then not uh-huh. not all of it so you get to say okay this is the level of of uh, when i think about this is- issue in this event this is how much distress i'm feeling at uh, whatever you would do right, one to zero ten, to ten zero, or whatever yeah. um and then you would do uh, how long would be would the bilateral stimulation go for? Would that be 10 minutes, 8 minutes, 3 minutes? You just gauge, you gauge it by the, um, you have to be attuned to the individual and okay. gauge it by what they're going through. But usually you check in frequently. So, you know, every 5 minutes less or more. If you know the person and they're, they're going, uh, a person can even judge for themselves when to stop after they get accustomed to it. I had a teenager who um, you know, would come in and say, okay, do that thing with the eyes. And so we set up the protocol. We we do the thing with the eyes, and in three or four minutes she was done. And she would say, okay, that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> and she uh, was really able to move very fast through some stuff. Well, that, that's great. So afterwards, when you say, okay, that's enough, you're then saying, so how's the sensation now? And right. so you'd go from an eight to a Five or a, or hopefully oh, not, to not a zero. To a ten. No, you want to get to a zero. You want to get to a zero. Yeah, yeah. and it can happen that quickly. Well, depending on the individual, on the and individual what and the other, complexity and the complexity of it. But um, yeah, I, th- I think it can happen pretty fast for some folks. Right. So I'm really interested in how and how this the trauma lives in in our bodies and our consciousness. And so when you're doing the the touching, is it really you know, I mean, we, we, we're speculating about what this, what this might be. Is it uh, the eye movement or the touching? Is it really a distraction or is it engaging the nervous system? What do- well, my theory is it's a distraction, but um, other theory says that it's, it has to do with um, processing that becomes stalled in a certain part of the brain and that yes. it actually affects the movement of the synapses. And, uh, but... You know, it, but who knows? It seems to work. We don't know. Well, we could know. Probably if we, you know, if if we use the uh, the the great, uh, the, you know, uh, the PET scan, we see which part of our brains light up. Well, they have done this. And yes. th- that's why it's it's very well researched, and so um, they have done scans on people and found that there there that there there is a lot of brain movement during the process. So. And they've also done scans, as you know, you talk about meditation and deep breathing on people. And I think uh, what they're showing is that 
the uh, process of meditation and sort of mindful awareness, moment-to-moment awareness, improves the the connections in the brain too. So there's very interesting stuff going on neurologically. I think that's that is very interesting because. Especially if we're trying to take something out of those negative feelings, that negative emotion, I've done something, I've done something wrong, I've done something whatever. Um, and we can really understand that this is a normal processing of our, of our minds, of how our brains work and how, in a way, to get to an avoidance response or something like that is, is a way of protection. It may not be the, the best adap- adaptation, but it is an attempt for the body to create homeostasis, to create a balance. And although it's not a strategy that can succeed forever. Well, for many people, the adaptations work for many years, and they can stay busy or they can stay functioning. And then um, certain things happen. Uh, Their son goes into the army. Uh, You know, they lose a job, Uh, whatever it is. Um, And... the combination of factors just makes them vulnerable for uh, a flooding of and an escalation of all the symptoms that they may never have experienced before. They may have been able to keep it down. So, so one can you really can be working with really very old trauma yep. here? Yeah, something very old that um, uh, that people have lived with for years and years. Yeah. Well, I'll just let that sit in. So everybody's at home now contemplating whether they're uh, re-stimulated by something. <laughs> well, it may not be, it may not be um, you know, a disorder. Uh, for some people, it's, a, it's an unpleasant memory. I mean, uh-huh. but th- what makes it a disorder is if your functioning is altered, if you can't go to work anymore, if you're unable to have trusting relationships. So it, there right. are severi- there's a continuum of distress that sometimes you can live with right yeah. and that's right and then the, but the goal of the treatment would be to to really be able to live your life fully again yeah to to have positive experiences to experience loving relationships to be able to have um to manage uh meaningful work and um, yeah live fully well, Lisa, we've been talking to Lisa Kushner. She's a clinical psychologist in private practice, uh, clinical social worker in private practice <laughs> in Belfast, Maine. Um, and she has been talking to us about post-traumatic stress and um, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, EMDR, as a treatment tool. I want to thank you for coming in. Thank you. And uh, sharing that. Is there a phone number where people can reach you if you or... Uh, People could uh, leave messages at the office. It's uh, 338-0030. That's 207-338-0030. Very good. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Amy, for Amy Brown, for being the engineer. And don't forget that we are in the middle of a pledge drive. So um, I don't think I have that number right in front of me. Amy, you're just going to have to give us that number. 1-800-643-6273. Thank you. Okay, so call in and support Community Radio. Thank you so much. I'm Rhonda Feynman. Every community deserves an open source for information, inspiration,